0: Father, we come to you in this Advent season, and we thank you for this time of gathering together. Father, we ask that this message, which are words from your heart, would strike to bone and marrow and would make a difference in this season. Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and rock and redeemer. Amen. I want to talk to you about Christmas season, which I adore and love. The Christmas season, which is full of things like sparkly pillows, uh, red and black plaid, good drinks, indigo reading socks, and a guilty pleasure for, I think, many of us, the Hallmark Christmas movies. Now, this is a little bit of true confession time. How many of you have seen at least one Hallmark Christmas movie? Come on, I know there's more hands, I should be up there. Those are some interesting movies, and they always have the same kind of a formula. In scene one, we see that our two heroes generally share a common goal. They probably don't like each other, there's probably a little bit of friction and tension, but generally there's something that they have to save together, a business or uh, a bank or a town. So if we could have that first hallmark picture if it's ready to go. Generally, we believe this is gonna be a doomed relationship. But in scene two, something happens that brings them together. And they begin to share a common goal and find out that actually they do like each other. And really, there's not that much separating them until we get to our third scene, which is the snow gently falling, and the first kiss. So romantic and so wonderful. So we end our night by bringing our hot chocolate cup back to the kitchen, climbing into our beds with a softened heart and love residing there. Now, in a way, when I read Ruth, we can almost read Ruth like a Hallmark movie. It's because the word, it just so happens, it just so happens that in the Hallmark movie, they have a goal, it just so happens, they fall in love. It just so happens. And in chapter two of Ruth, there are a lot of plot twists that happen. Now, if you remember Pastor Chris's sermon from last week, we have two women leaving a bitter existence in Moab. He explained that the family of Elimelech lived in Bethlehem, the house of bread, because of a famine, and they go to Moab where there is no famine. They go there with their two sons who marry and grow there in Moab, find wives. Well, of course, if they married, they found wives anyways. But then there is the plot twist. The tension comes in when Elimelech dies and the two sons die. And all of a sudden, Naomi is left there with two daughter-in-laws and no way to, to live. She changes her name, Naomi, which means pleasant to the word Mara, which means bitter. And she decides that she's going to move back to Bethlehem. She tells her two daughters, their daughter-in-laws they have a choice. Orpah decides to stay and Ruth decides to go with her. And in one of the most beautiful entreaties, Ruth says, entreat me not to leave you or to depart from following you, for where you go, I will go where you lead I will follow your people will be my people and your God will be my God what beautiful words so she travels along with Ruth and they go to Bethlehem now it just so happens in verse 1 that Naomi has a relative on Elimelech's side and he's a man of good standing his name is Boaz now there is so much here in verse one. I wonder if you could put that up there for me, Jason. First one, she had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It doesn't tell us much. But if you remember from the, the, uh, the way Jewish law works, in order for Naomi to stay in the, the line of Elimelech, uh, she had to marry another son. So this is where Ruth uses, or Naomi uses some good mother-in-law sarcastic humor and she says, listen, Naomi, you can stay with me, but I'd have to marry another man, get pregnant, you have to wait till that child grows up and then you can marry him, and I don't think you're going to hang around that long. So instead they're looking for someone else in the clan of Elimelech. Now Boaz, his name means swiftness or strength is in him. Now if you remember that Naomi's two sons were named Malon and Kilion, and their names meant sickness and wasting. Now there's a hallmark twist for you. This man was, this Boaz was a strong, upstanding man. And he was, another plot twist, single. He is a man worthy of trust, someone to emulate, an image bearer of God. Now Levitical law, explains a lot about why these women would want to go back to Bethlehem uh, in order that they could have a subsistence of some kind. They could glean for free. Pastor Chelsea Harmon describes the process of gleaning in this way. The process of clearing the field of its crops involves a two-step process. The men entered the field first and cut the grain from the ground, collecting it into handfuls. When their hand was full, they dropped the bundles onto the ground, which were then gathered by women who followed a distance behind them. The women gleaned the handfuls into bundles, which would then be carried off the field. During each step of this process, there would inevitably be pieces that would drop or fall out of the bundles. Instead of going through the field a second time, God says that these crops, along with those on the very edge of the field, which possibly had weeds in them, they were to be left for the poor and the foreigner." Well, what a beautiful way God had in mind for us to show mercy to the poor and to the foreigner. And indeed, Ruth was all of those things. She was hungry, homeless, husbandless, poor, and a foreigner. So it just so happens as well that Ruth's timing is perfect. It is the festival of the barley harvest which means everybody is in their fields. And then we get to verses two and three. And they say this, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. I think, yeah, that's it. Go ahead, my daughter. And then it just so happens that where does Ruth end up? Now there's a lot of roads she could have traveled down, there's a lot of fields she could have stopped in, but whose field does she end up in? Boaz's field. It just so happens. Now Boaz shows up on the scene and you can imagine he already knows everybody that's going to be in his field because he's hired them. He's also hired an overseer which means he's fairly wealthy because he's got that many people in his crew but he would know his crew because he feeds them every day, and so when he sees Ruth, he does take notice of her, and he asks, who is that? Now, biblical accounts don't really say that Ruth is beautiful, but this is a Hallmark movie after all. We are assuming she is. So Ruth also asks in verse six and seven if she can harvest in the fields while the harvesters are still at work. I wondered why that was in the Bible, and it turns out This is not a normal request. Generally the harvesters go in and then the women would go in, but for her to go behind the harvesters means she's gonna pick up even more grain. So this is a bold request because Bethlehem as well is coming out of a time of famine and she literally is picking up food other people could have. Well, Ruth must have really impressed the overseer because he pleads her case to Boaz Reminding Boaz that she's a foreigner, that she came here with Naomi, she's a hard worker. As a matter of fact, he makes note of the fact that she's stayed in the hot sun all day harvesting, and is only taking a few breaks. Verses eight to thirteen, we find we find Boaz speaking to Ruth, and asking her, and she's he has given her permission to glean in the field. Now, you might imagine that Ruth at this point kind of has her eyebrow in a bit of a twist and is wondering why exactly did Boaz give her that permission? Why did he give her that favor? Because he has gone above and beyond. If we read what he says, he says, Don't go to another field. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. And when you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Again, this is a bit of a twist, isn't it? Usually gathering water is something that the women do. But because Boaz knows that if there's large jars of water on the edge of the field, his harvesters can keep on going, he's had that happen. Generally, women gather the water. And now not only have the men already done so, but Boaz is giving Ruth permission to go and get that water. What does that mean? It means she doesn't have to leave the field, find water, Uh, drink, come back to the field. He's just saved her a lot of steps. Then in verse 12, there's another element that really strikes me. May the Lord repay what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He is pronouncing a blessing over Ruth. Ruth. Now you've heard the word Hassed used many times up here. Hasid is a Hebrew word for loving kindness or blessed kindness. Boaz is pronouncing this blessing over Ruth. What we see here is Boaz also commending Ruth's uh, character publicly. In front of the laborers, he's talking about her faithfulness and her integrity, and he's offering her protection, and he's offering her water. He says, may you be richly blessed by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So without giving away the sermon for next week, it just so happens that the person that is going to provide that refuge for Ruth is Boaz himself. When we turn to God, we're turning to a God who is not only sovereign over all the details in our lives, but we're turning to a God who's gonna protect us when we don't even know what's happening. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz invites her to share the meal with his workers, who he has provided lunch for. Now, in some manuscripts, when they talk about the roasted grain, it says that Boaz heaped the grain in front of her. So he was really making sure that she was fed. But that's just the point, Boaz served her. And in this serving of, of Ruth, we find a correlation to Jesus serving his disciples. Again, it's an unusual behavior. He shows Ruth unmerited, undeserved favor. Aren't those familiar words? And then he instructs the workers to pull grain out of their bundles and leave them behind for Ruth. And he knows that the extra grain is gonna feed Naomi and Ruth for a longer time. Now when Ruth threshes her grain at the end of the day, it says she gathered amounts to an ephah. And I'm like, that's cool. What's an ephah? So I Googled it. Now Google truly is all over the map. This is where you call fake news, fake news. But anyways, figures show an ephah is anywhere from 30 to 60 pounds, but the most common answer was 35 pounds. So imagine that ladies, you've worked in the hot sun all day long and now you've got to gather that grain, throw it on your back and haul it off home. To also put it in perspective, uh, that's two weeks of labor in one day or a half month of wages. So Ruth is going home with a bounty from threshing as well as a food that she's already set aside from Naomi from lunch. So then we go to verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, when Ruth comes home. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then she added, just so happens, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Amazing, imagine that, it just so happens, all the roads to wander down, she finds a kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer is three things a near relative or kinsman, so it has to be related to the family, and indeed, Boaz was. Number two is one who had the means to bring about the redemption, including family members sold into slavery. So you had to be wealthy, and indeed, Boaz was. And one who had the desire to accomplish redemption. Now again, we're not gonna give away the sermon for next week, but as it happens. Boaz fits the bill completely to be a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer for Ruth. But not only for Ruth, for Naomi. Not only for Naomi, but for the line of Elimelech. If it wasn't enough blessing, he has now invited Ruth to come back to his field, providing more food and providing safety. What a story. Now let's not forget that both of these women are still lost in the grief of losing their husbands and their sons. They've left a land where things were relatively known to come back to Bethlehem where things were very unknown for them. And truly, what joy is there in that? I suppose that if I was Naomi, the only joy that I would be experiencing is the fact that Ruth knows what I'm going through, she understands me, and she really wants to be with me. But then again, I wonder about Naomi, if she was ready then at that point to change her name from Mara, bitter, back to Naomi, pleasant. Is she beginning to move from despair to hope? And does she recognize that the turn of events are the hand of God? And indeed, when we read it, we find that she is quick to name the Lord as the source of blessing. Blessed be the Lord, whose kindness, whose said has not forsaken the living or the dead. So the question for us then is what does it take for us to move from despair to hope to joy? There was a shift in the story at this point because we do see the despair of Moab being flipped over by the hope in Bethlehem. Naomi has recognized the it just so happens. She has seen the hand of God in impossible circumstances. And when we pause, I think we're also able to see where God has been at work and name some of the things in our own lives when miracles or it just so happen, happens. In verse 20, Naomi talks about God's loyal love to herself and Ruth. And I think that we're gonna find that God's loyal love is the same to us. He shows his love through people like Ruth, through people like Boaz, and through you and through me. The times that we'll go that extra mile just to make sure someone else is cared for. We could even change the name of that loyal love to the word grace. We're given salvation because of grace. We can't work for it and we certainly don't earn it. When Boaz says the Lord repay you, I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 verse six, which talks about God rewarding those who seek after him. When people come to God in faith, knowing that they don't deserve his grace, he rewards those that seek him. Ruth had already turned to the Lord. She's made that decision when she came with Naomi to Bethlehem and to the house of the God of Israel. It isn't a coincidence when God is involved. As a matter of fact, there's never a coincidence. God is working in all the little details. So it's a good reminder to us that we have a sovereign God and that nothing happens by accident because there is no, it just so happened. We have a faithful God acting through a family and bringing their family line into the line of Jesus, which you saw earlier, the lineage slide. Can you imagine this Moabitess who lost her husband, who traveled to Bethlehem to a strange place? is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So how do we move from despair to joy? Well, I read a blog from Pastor Rick Warren and he talks about moving our hearts into a correct posture. So here we go, five pithy ways of creating happiness. Number one, remember that God is with you, in you and for you. Romans 8:31 says if God is for us no one can defeat us. When we think the world is not only going to overwhelm but when the surety of God's faithfulness reminds us that he is in control. Number 2, be grateful without grumbling. Philippians 2:14 says do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's hard to do when we're not feeling our best when we're in pain, when we have a tragedy in the family, when things are not going well. But can you imagine if we didn't grumble? I'll be working on that one. Keep your conscience clear, Philippians 2 verse 15. Paul writes, you are to live clean, innocent lives as children of God in a dark world full of people who are crooked and stubborn. Shine out among them like beacon lights. Whoa little self-examination time there. Are you being stubborn and not taking the first steps to clear a problem between you and someone else? This is something worth reflecting on, isn't it? Memorize God's word is step four. Philippians 2.16, hold firmly to the word of life. Change your thinking. You dwell on God's thoughts, not your own. God's words, not your own. And number five, Use your life to serve others. Matthew 25, verse 40. Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. God put into place ways that we can take care of each other. It's the reaping law. It's the kinsman redeemer law. It's the things that our deacons do. It's the things that we as a church family can do for others. It's a reminder to be as generous as Boaz. Joy is a theme throughout the Bible. It starts in Genesis when God proclaims the world, it is good. Where did I just lose myself? Uh, It's an attitude that God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, not because their hope is in God's law and promise. The joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles. But by their future destiny because it just so happens that god loves you while the next quote is being shown if it can go up i'd like to invite the worship team to come forward i have a quote by douglas webster it might not come up it's all right for as long as life rests on our own self-effort and good fortune The joy of life extends only to the happiness of our circumstances. I just want to say that one more time because it really struck me. As long as life rests on our own self-effort and good fortune, the joy of life only extends to the happiness of our circumstances. Christian joy is more than turn that frown upside down. It's a profound decision to place our faith and hope in the power of Jesus Christ and his rescue over us. The story of Ruth is a story that I call Despair to Joy. Are you in this place? This is the first year, oh man, the first Christmas without my mom. It's sad and yet I have the joy of knowing I can hug my dad and I can spend time with my family and I know she's in a better place. She's out of pain. I have true joy and we have true joy because we have the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to earth, who defeated sadness and despair and came in power. God's loving kindness over us is undeserved and unmerited and yet he forgives our sins and he restores our relationship to himself. That sacrificial love of Jesus is that he dies for our sins, and then he restores our joy. We live in joy while we wait because we have hope. We have hope because a savior of the world has come and is coming again. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are the author of joy, that joy was built into the world at its inception that you came back to restore that relationship with you thank you father for your sacrificial love on our behalf oh lord we don't deserve it and we are so grateful father would you live deeply in our hearts not only this season but throughout the year thank you and we praise your name jesus amen